You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 21 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21. Interesting and Instructive Vicissitudes of a Persian in the Cellars of the Opera. The Persian's Narrative. It was the first time that I entered the house on the lake. I had often begged the trap-door lover, as we used to call Eric in my country, to open its mysterious doors to me. He always refused. I made very many attempts, but in vain, to obtain admittance. Watch him as I might, after I first learned that he had taken up his permanent abode at the opera, the darkness was always too thick to enable me to see how he worked the door in the wall on the lake. One day, when I thought myself alone, I stepped into the boat and rowed toward that part of the wall through which I had seen Eric disappear. It was then that I came into contact with the siren who guarded the approach and whose charm was very nearly fatal to me. I had no sooner put off from the bank than the silence amid which I floated on the water was disturbed by a sort of whispered singing that hovered all around me. It was half breath, half music. It rose softly from the waters of the lake, and I was surrounded by it through I knew not what artifice. It followed me, moved with me, and was so soft that it did not alarm me. On the contrary, in my longing to approach the source of that sweet and enticing harmony, I leaned out of my little boat over the water, for there was no doubt in my mind that the singing came from the water itself. By this time I was alone in the boat, in the middle of the lake. The voice, for it was now distinctly a voice, was beside me on the water. I leaned over, leaned still farther. The lake was perfectly calm, and a moonbeam that passed through the air-hole in the Rue Scribe showed me absolutely nothing on its surface which was smooth and black as ink. I shook my ears to get rid of a possible humming, but I soon had to accept the fact that there was no humming in the ears so harmonious as the singing whisper that followed and now attracted me. Had I been inclined to superstition, I should have certainly thought that I had to do with some siren whose business it was to confound the traveller who should venture on the waters of the house on the lake. 
Fortunately, I come from a country where we are too fond of fantastic things not to know them through and through, and I had no doubt but that I was face to face with some new invention of Eric's. But this invention was so perfect that as I leaned out of the boat I was impelled less by a desire to discover its trick than to enjoy its charm, and I leaned out, leaned out until I almost overturned the boat. Suddenly two monstrous arms issued from the bosom of the waters and seized me by the neck, dragging me down to the depths with irresistible force. I should certainly have been lost if I had not had time to give a cry by which Eric knew me, for it was he, and instead of drowning me, as was certainly his first intention, he swam with me and laid me gently on the bank. "'How imprudent you are,' he said, as he stood before me, dripping with water. "'Why try to enter my house? I never invited you. I don't want you there, nor anybody. Did you save my life only to make it unbearable to me? However great the service you rendered him, Eric may end by forgetting it, and you know that nothing can restrain Eric, not even Eric himself.' He spoke, but I had now no other wish than to know what I already called the trick of the siren. He satisfied my curiosity, for Eric, who is a real monster, I have seen him at work in Persia, alas, is also in certain respects a regular child, vain and self-conceited, and there is nothing he loves so much, after astonishing people, as to prove all the really miraculous ingenuity of his mind. He laughed and showed me a long reed. It's the silliest trick you ever saw, he said, but it's very useful for breathing and singing in the water. I learned it from the Tonkin pirates, who are able to remain hidden for hours in the beds of the rivers. I spoke to him severely. It's a trick that nearly killed me, I said, and it may have been fatal to others. You know what you promised me, Eric no more murders. Have I really committed murders? he asked, putting on his most amiable air. Wretched man, I cried, have you forgotten the rosy hours of Mazenderan? Yes, he replied in a sadder tone, I prefer to forget them. I used to make the little sultana laugh, though. All that belongs to the past, I declared, but there is the present and you are responsible to me for the present, because if I had wished, there would have been none at all for you. Remember that, Eric. I saved your life. And I took advantage of the turn of conversation to speak to him of something that had long been on my mind. Eric, I asked, Eric, swear that— What? he retorted. You know I never keep my oaths. Oaths are made to catch gulls with. Tell me, you can tell me at any rate. Well? Well, the chandelier, the chandelier, Eric. What about the chandelier? You know what I mean. Oh, he sniggered, I don't mind telling you about the chandelier. It wasn't I. The chandelier was very old and worn. When Eric laughed he was more terrible than ever. 
he jumped into the boat, chuckling so horribly that I could not help trembling. Very old and worn, my dear Daroga, very old and worn, the chandelier. It fell of itself, it came down with a smash, and now, Daroga, take my advice and go and dry yourself, or you'll catch a cold in the head, and never get into my boat again. And whatever you do, don't try to enter my house. I'm not always there, Daroga, and I should be sorry to have to dedicate my requiem mass to you. So saying, swinging to and fro like a monkey, and still chuckling, he pushed off and soon disappeared in the darkness of the lake. From that day I gave up all thought of penetrating into his house by the lake. That entrance was obviously too well guarded, especially since he had learned that I knew about it. But I felt that there must be another entrance, for I had often seen Eric disappear in the third cellar when I was watching him, though I could not imagine how. Ever since I had discovered Eric installed in the opera, I lived in a perpetual terror of his horrible fancies, not in so far as I was concerned, but I dreaded everything for others, and whenever some accident, some fatal event happened, I always thought to myself, I should not be surprised if that were Eric, even as others used to say, it's the ghost. How often have I not heard people utter that phrase with a smile, poor devils, if they had known that the ghost existed in the flesh, I swear they would not have laughed. Although Eric announced to me very solemnly that he had changed and that he had become the most virtuous of men, since he was loved for himself, a sentence that at first perplexed me most terribly, I could not help shuddering when I thought of the monster his horrible, unparalleled, and repulsive ugliness put him without the pale of humanity, and it often seemed to me that for this reason he no longer believed that he had any duty toward the human race. The way in which he spoke of his love affairs only increased my alarm, for I foresaw the cause of fresh and more hideous tragedies in this event to which he alluded so boastfully. On the other hand, I soon discovered the curious moral traffic established between the monster and Christine Day, hiding in the lumber room next to the young prima donna's dressing room. I listened to wonderful musical displays that evidently flung Christine into marvelous ecstasy. But all the same, I would never have thought that Eric's voice, which was loud as thunder or soft as angels' voices, at will, could have made her forget his ugliness. I understood all when I learned that Christine had not yet seen him. I had occasion to go to the dressing-room, and, remembering the lessons he had once given me, I had no difficulty in discovering the trick that made the wall with the mirror swing round, and I ascertained the means of hollow bricks, and so on, by which he made his voice carry to Christine as though she heard it close beside her. In this way also I discovered the road that led to the well, and the dungeon, the communist dungeon, and also the trap-door that enabled Eric to go straight to the cellars below the stage. 
a few days later what was not my amazement to learn by my own eyes and ears that eric and christine day saw each other and to catch the monster stooping over the little well in the communist road and sprinkling the forehead of christine day who had fainted a white horse the horse out of the profeta which had disappeared from the stables under the opera was standing quietly beside them i showed myself it was terrible i saw sparks fly from those yellow eyes and before i had time to say a word i received a blow on the head that stunned me when i came to myself eric christine and the white horse had disappeared i felt sure that the poor girl was a prisoner in the house on the lake without hesitation i resolved to return to the bank notwithstanding the attendant danger for twenty-four hours i lay in wait for the monster to appear for i felt that he must go out driven by the need of obtaining provisions and in this connection i may say that when he went out in the streets or ventured to show himself in public he wore a pasteboard nose with a moustache attached to it instead of his own horrible hole of a nose this did not quite take away his corpse-like air but it made him almost i say almost endurable to look at i therefore watched on the bank of the lake and weary of long waiting was beginning to think that he had gone through the other door the door in the third cellar when i heard a slight splashing in the dark i saw the two yellow eyes shining like candles and soon the boat touched shore eric jumped out and walked up to me you've been here for twenty-four hours he said and you're annoying me i tell you all this will end very badly and you will have brought it upon yourself for i have been extraordinarily patient with you you think you are following me you great booby whereas it's i who am following you and i know all that you know about me here i spared you yesterday in my communist road but i warn you seriously don't let me catch you there again upon my word you don't seem able to take a hint he was so furious that i did not think for the moment of interrupting him after puffing and blowing like a walrus he put his horrible thought into words yes you must learn once and for all once and for all i say to take a hint i tell you that with your recklessness for you have already been twice arrested by the shade in the felt hat who did not know what you were doing in the cellars and took you to the managers who looked upon you as an eccentric persian interested in stage mechanism and life behind the scenes i know all about it i was there in the office you know i am everywhere well i tell you that with your recklessness they will end by wondering what you are after here and they will end by knowing that you are after eric and then they will be after eric themselves and they will discover the house on the lake if they do it will be a bad lookout for you old chap a bad lookout i won't answer for anything again he puffed and blew like a walrus i won't answer for anything if eric's secrets cease to be eric's secrets it will be a bad lookout for a goodly number of the human race that's all i have to tell you and unless you are a great booby it ought to be enough for you 
except that you don't know how to take a hint. He had sat down on the stern of his boat and was kicking his heels against the planks, waiting to hear what I had to answer. I simply said, It's not Eric that I'm after here. Who then? You know as well as I do. It's Christine Day, I answered. He retorted, I have every right to see her in my own house. I am loved for my own sake. That's not true, I said. You have carried her off and are keeping her locked up. Listen, he said, will you promise never to meddle with my affairs again if I prove to you that I am loved for my own sake? Yes, I promise you, I replied without hesitation, for I felt convinced that for such a monster the proof was impossible. Well, then, it's quite simple. Christine Day shall leave this as she pleases and come back again. Yes, come back again, because she wishes. Come back of herself, because she loves me for myself. Oh, I doubt if she will come back, but it is your duty to let her go. My duty, you great booby. It is my wish, my wish to let her go. And she will come back again, for she loves me. All this will end in a marriage, a marriage at the Madeleine, you great booby. Do you believe me now when I tell you that my nuptial mass is written? Wait till you hear the Kiri. He beat time with his heels on the planks of the boat and sang, Kiri, Kiri, Kiri Elison. Wait till you hear, wait till you hear that mass. Look here, I said. I shall believe you if I see Christine Day come out of the house on the lake and go back to it of her own accord. And you won't meddle any more in my affairs? No. Very well, you shall see that tonight. Come to the masked ball. Christine and I will go and have a look around. Then you can hide in the lumber room and you shall see Christine, who will have gone to her dressing room, delighted to come back by the communists' road and now be off, for I must go and do some shopping. To my intense astonishment, things happened as he had announced. Christine Day left the house on the lake and returned to it several times without apparently being forced to do so. It was very difficult for me to clear my mind of Eric. However, I resolved to be extremely prudent, and did not make the mistake of returning to the shore of the lake or of going by the communist's road, but the idea of the secret entrance in the third cellar haunted me, and I repeatedly went and waited for hours behind a scene from the Roy de Lahore, which had been left there for some reason or other. At last my patience was rewarded. One day I saw the monster come toward me on his knees. I was certain that he could not see me. He passed between the scene behind which I stood and a set piece, went to the wall and pressed on a spring that moved a stone and afforded him an ingress. He passed through this, and the stone closed behind him. I waited for at least thirty minutes, and then pressed the spring in my turn. Everything happened as with Eric, but I was careful not to go through the hole myself, for I knew that Eric was inside. 
On the other hand, the idea that I might be caught by Eric suddenly made me think of the death of Joseph Bouquet. I did not wish to jeopardize the advantages of so great a discovery which might be useful to many people, to a goodly number of the human race, in Eric's words, and I left the cellars of the opera after carefully replacing the stone. I continued to be greatly interested in the relations between Eric and Christine Day, not from any morbid curiosity, but because of the terrible thought which obsessed my mind that Eric was capable of anything if he once discovered that he was not loved for his own sake as he imagined. I continued to wander very cautiously about the opera and soon learned the truth about the monster's dreary love affair. He filled Christine's mind through the terror with which he inspired her, but the dear child's heart belonged wholly to the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny. While they played about like an innocent engaged couple on the upper floors of the opera to avoid the monster, they little suspected that someone was watching over them. I was prepared to do anything, to kill the monster if necessary, and explain to the police afterward. But Eric did not show himself, and I felt none the more comfortable for that. I must explain my whole plan. I thought that the monster, being driven from his house by jealousy, would thus enable me to enter it without danger through the passage in the third cellar. It was important, for everybody's sake, that I should know exactly what was inside. One day, tired of waiting for an opportunity, I moved the stone and at once heard an astounding music. The monster was working at his Don Juan triumphant, with every door in his house wide open. I knew that this was the work of his life. I was careful not to stir and remained prudently in my dark hole. He stopped playing for a moment and began walking about his place like a madman and he said aloud at the top of his voice, It must be finished first, quite finished. This speech was not calculated to reassure me, and when the music recommenced I closed the stone very softly. On the day of the abduction of Christine Day, I did not come to the theater until rather late in the evening, trembling lest I should hear bad news. I had spent a horrible day, for after reading in a morning paper the announcement of a forthcoming marriage between Christine and the Vicomte de Chagny, I wondered whether, after all, I should not do better to denounce the monster. But reason returned to me, and I was persuaded that this action could only precipitate a possible catastrophe. When my cab set me down before the opera, I was really almost astonished to see it still standing, but I am something of a fatalist, like all good Orientals, and I entered ready for anything. Christine Day's abduction in the prison act, which naturally surprised everybody, found me prepared. I was quite certain that she had been juggled away by Eric, that prince of conjurers, and I thought positively that this was the end of Christine, and perhaps of everybody, so much so that I thought of advising all these people who were staying on at the theater to make good their escape. I felt, however, that they would be sure to look upon me as mad, and I refrained. 
on the other hand i resolved to act without further delay as far as i was concerned the chances were in my favor that eric at that moment was thinking only of his captive this was the moment to enter his house through the third cellar and i resolved to take with me that poor little desperate viscount who at the first suggestion accepted with an amount of confidence in myself that touched me profoundly i had sent my servant for my pistols i gave one to the viscount and advised him to hold himself ready to fire for after all eric might be waiting for us behind the wall we were to go by the communist road and through the trap door seeing my pistols the little viscount asked me if we were going to fight a duel i said yes and what a duel but of course i had no time to explain anything to him the little viscount is a brave fellow but he knew hardly anything about his adversary and it was so much the better my great fear was that he was already somewhere near us preparing the punjab lasso no one knows better than he how to throw the punjab lasso for he is the king of stranglers even as he is the prince of conjurers when he had finished making the little sultana laugh at the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan she herself used to ask him to amuse her by giving her a thrill it was then that he introduced the sport of the punjab lasso he had lived in india and acquired an incredible skill in the art of strangulation he would make them lock him into a courtyard to which they brought a warrior usually a man condemned to death armed with a long pike and broadsword eric had only his lasso and it was always just when the warrior thought that he was going to fell eric with a tremendous blow that we heard the lasso whistle through the air with a turn of the wrist eric tightened the noose round his adversary's neck and in this fashion dragged him before the little sultana and her women who sat looking from a window and applauding the little sultana herself learned to wield the punjab lasso and killed several of her women and even of the friends who visited her but i prefer to drop this terrible subject of the rosy hours of mazenderan i have mentioned it only to explain why on arriving with the vicomte de chagny in the cellars of the opera i was bound to protect my companion against the ever-threatening danger of death by strangling my pistols could serve no purpose for eric was not likely to show himself but eric could always strangle us i had no time to explain all this to the viscount besides there was nothing to be gained by complicating the position i simply told monsieur de chagny to keep his hand at the level of his eyes with the arm bent as though waiting for the command to fire with his victim in this attitude it is impossible even for the most expert strangler to throw the lasso with advantage it catches you not only round the neck but also round the arm or hand this enables you easily to unloose the lasso which then becomes harmless after avoiding the commissary of police a number of door shutters and the firemen after meeting the rat-catcher and passing the man in the felt hat unperceived the viscount and i arrived without obstacle in the third cellar between the set-pieces and the scene from the roy de lahore 
I worked the stone, and we jumped into the house, which Eric had built himself in the double case of the foundation walls of the opera, and this was the easiest thing in the world for him to do, because Eric was one of the chief contractors under Philippe Garnier, the architect of the opera, and continued to work by himself when the works were officially suspended during the war, the siege of Paris, and the Commune. I knew my Eric too well to feel at all comfortable on jumping into his house. I knew what he had made of a certain palace at Mazadran. From being the most honest building conceivable, he soon turned it into a house of the very devil, where you could not utter a word, but it was overheard or repeated by an echo. With his trap-doors the monster was responsible for endless tragedies of all kinds. He hit upon astonishing inventions. Of these the most curious, horrible, and dangerous was the so-called torture chamber, except in special cases when the little sultana amused herself by inflicting suffering upon some unoffending citizen. No one was let into it but wretches condemned to death. And even then, when these had had enough, they were always at liberty to put an end to themselves with a Punjab lasso or bowstring, left for their use at the foot of an iron tree. My alarm, therefore, was great when I saw that the room into which Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny and I had dropped was an exact copy of the torture chamber of the rosy hours of Mazenderan. At our feet I found the Punjab lasso, which I had been dreading all the evening. I was convinced that this rope had already done duty for Joseph Bouquet, who, like myself, must have caught Eric one evening working the stone in the third cellar. He probably tried it in his turn, fell into the torture chamber, and only left it hanged. I can well imagine Eric dragging the body, in order to get rid of it, to the scene from the Roy de Lahore, and hanging it there as an example, or to increase the superstitious terror that was to help him in guarding the approaches to his lair. Then, upon reflection, Eric went back to fetch the Punjab lasso, which is very curiously made out of catgut, and which might have set an examining magistrate thinking. This explains the disappearance of the rope. And now I discovered the lasso at our feet, in the torture chamber. I am no coward, but a cold sweat covered my forehead as I moved my little red disc of my lantern over the walls. Monsieur de Chagny noticed it and asked, What is the matter, sir? I made him a violent sign to be silent. End of chapter 21 Chapter Twenty Two of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two In the Torture Chamber. The Persian's narrative continued. We were in the middle of a little six cornered room, the sides of which were covered with mirrors from top to bottom. In the corners we could clearly see the joins in the glasses, the segments intended to turn on their gear. Yes, I recognized them, and I recognized the iron tree in the corner, at the bottom of one of those segments. The iron tree, with its iron branch, for the hanged men. 
I seized my companion's arm. The Vicomte de Chagny was all a-quiver, eager to shout to his betrothed that he was bringing her help. I feared that he would not be able to contain himself. Suddenly we heard a noise on our left. It sounded at first like a door opening and shutting in the next room, and then there was a dull moan. I clutched Monsieur de Chagny's arm more firmly still, and then we distinctly heard these words. You must make your choice, the wedding mass or the requiem mass. I recognized the voice of the monster. There was another moan, followed by a long silence. I was persuaded by now that the monster was unaware of our presence in his house, for otherwise he would certainly have managed not to let us hear him. He would only have had to close the little invisible window through which the torture lovers looked down into the torture chamber. Besides, I was certain that if he had known of our presence, the tortures would have begun at once. The important thing was not to let him know, and I dreaded nothing so much as the impulsiveness of the Vicomte de Chagny, who wanted to rush through the walls to Christine Day, whose moans we continued to hear at intervals. "'The requiem mass is not at all gay,' Eric's voice resumed, "'whereas the wedding mass, you can take my word for it, is magnificent. You must take a resolution and know your own mind.' I can't go on living like this, like a mole in a burrow. Don Juan triumphant is finished, and now I want to live like everybody else. I want to have a wife like everybody else, and to take her out on Sundays. I have invented a mask that makes me look like anybody. People will not even turn round in the streets. You will be the happiest of women, and we will sing all by ourselves till we swoon away with delight. You are crying. You are afraid of me. And yet I am not really wicked. Love me, and you shall see. All I wanted was to be loved for myself. If you loved me, I should be as gentle as a lamb, and you could do anything with me that you pleased. Soon the moans that accompanied this sort of love's litany increased and increased. I have never heard anything more despairing and Monsieur de Chagny and I recognized that this terrible lamentation came from Eric himself. Christine seemed to be standing dumb with horror, without the strength to cry out, while the monster was on his knees before her. Three times over Eric fiercely bewailed his fate. "'You don't love me! You don't love me! You don't love me!' And then, more gently, why do you cry? You know it gives me pain to see you cry. A silence. Each silence gave us fresh hope. We said to ourselves, perhaps he has left Christine behind the wall, and we thought only of the possibility of warning Christine Day of our presence unknown to the monster. We were unable to leave the torture chamber now unless Christine opened the door to us, and it was only on this condition that we could hope to help her for we did not even know where the door might be. Suddenly the silence in the next room was disturbed by the ringing of an electric bell. There was a bound on the other side of the wall, and Eric's voice of thunder. Somebody ringing! Walk in, please! A sinister chuckle. Who has come bothering now? 
Wait for me here. I am going to tell the siren to open the door. Steps moved away. A door closed. I had no time to think of the fresh horror that was preparing. I forgot that the monster was only going out, perhaps, to perpetrate a fresh crime. I understood but one thing. Christine was alone behind the wall. The Vicomte de Chagny was already calling to her. Christine! Christine! As we could hear what was said in the next room, there was no reason why my companion should not be heard in his turn. Nevertheless, the Viscount had to repeat his cry time after time. At last a faint voice reached us. I am dreaming, it said. Christine! Christine! It is I, Raoul! A silence. But answer me, Christine! In heaven's name, if you are alone, answer me! Then Christine's voice whispered Raoul's name. Yes, yes, it is I. It is not a dream. Christine, trust me. We are here to save you. But be prudent. When you hear the monster, warn us. Then Christine gave way to fear. She trembled lest Eric should discover where Raoul was hidden. She told us in a few hurried words that Eric had gone quite mad with love, and that he had decided to kill everybody and himself with everybody if she did not consent to become his wife. He had given her till eleven o'clock the next evening for reflection. It was the last respite. She must choose, as he said, between the wedding mass and the requiem and Eric had then uttered a phrase which Christine did not quite understand. Yes or no, if your answer is no, everybody will be dead and buried. But I understood the sentence perfectly, for it corresponded in a terrible manner with my own dreadful thought. Can you tell us where Eric is? I asked. She replied that he must have left the house. Could you make sure? No. I am fastened. I cannot stir a limb. When we heard this, Monsieur de Chagny and I gave a yell of fury. Our safety, the safety of all three of us, depended on the girl's liberty of movement. But where are you? asked Christine. There are only two doors in my room, the Louis-Philippe room of which I told you, Raoul, a door through which Eric comes and goes, and another which he has never opened before me, and which he has forbidden me ever to go through, because, he says, it is the most dangerous of the doors, the door of the torture chamber. Christine, that is where we are. You are in the torture chamber? Yes, but we cannot see the door. Oh, if I could only drag myself so far, I would knock at the door, and that would tell you where it is. Is it a door with a lock to it? I asked. Yes, with a lock. Mademoiselle, I said, it is absolutely necessary that you should open that door to us. But how? asked the poor girl tearfully. We heard her straining, trying to free herself from the bonds that held her. I know where the key is she said in a voice that seemed exhausted by the effort she had made. But I am fastened so tight. Oh, the wretch! And she gave a sob. Where is the key? I asked, signing to Monsieur de Chagny not to speak and to leave the business to me, for we had not a moment to lose. 
in the next room near the organ with another little bronze key which he also forbade me to touch they are both in a little leather bag which he calls the bag of life and death raoul raoul fly everything is mysterious and terrible here and eric will soon have gone quite mad and you are in the torture chamber go back by the way you came there must be a reason why the room is called by that name christine said the young man we will go from here together or die together we must keep cool i whispered why has he fastened you mademoiselle you can't escape from his house and he knows it i tried to commit suicide the monster went out last night after carrying me here fainting and half chloroformed he was going to his banker so he said when he returned he found me with my face covered with blood i had tried to kill myself by striking my forehead against the walls christine groaned raoul and he began to sob then he bound me i am not allowed to die until eleven o'clock to-morrow evening mademoiselle i declared the monster bound you and he shall unbind you you have only to play the necessary part remember that he loves you alas we heard am i likely to forget it remember it and smile to him entreat him tell him that your bonds hurt you but christine day said hush i hear something in the wall on the lake it is he go away go away go away we could not go away even if we wanted to i said as impressively as i could we cannot leave this and we are in the torture chamber hush whispered christine again heavy steps sounded slowly behind the wall then stopped and made the floor creak once more next came a tremendous sigh followed by a cry of horror from christine and we heard eric's voice i beg your pardon for letting you see a face like this what a state i am in am i not it's the other one's fault why did he ring do i ask people who pass to tell me the time he will never ask anybody the time again it is the siren's fault another sigh deeper more tremendous still came from the abysmal depths of a soul why did you cry out christine because i am in pain eric i thought i had frightened you eric unloose my bonds am i not your prisoner you will try to kill yourself again you have given me till eleven o'clock to-morrow evening eric the footsteps dragged along the floor again after all as we are to die together and i am just as eager as you yes i have had enough of this life you know wait don't move i will release you you have only one word to say no and it will at once be over with everybody you are right you are right why wait till eleven o'clock to-morrow evening true it would have been grander finer but that is childish nonsense we should only think of ourselves in this life of our own death the rest doesn't matter you're looking at me because i am all wet oh my dear it's raining cats and dogs outside apart from that christine i think i am subject to hallucinations 
you know the man who rang at the siren's door just now go and look if he's ringing at the bottom of the lake well he was rather like there turn round are you glad you're free now oh my poor christine look at your wrists tell me have i hurt them that alone deserves death talking of death i must sing his requiem hearing these terrible remarks i received an awful presentiment i too had once rung at the monster's door and without knowing it must have set some warning current in motion and i remembered the two arms that had emerged from the inky waters what poor wretch had strayed to that shore this time who was the other one the one whose requiem we now heard sung eric sang like the god of thunder sang a dies irae that enveloped us as in a storm the elements seemed to rage around us suddenly the organ and the voice ceased so suddenly that monsieur de chagny sprang back on the other side of the wall with emotion and the voice changed and transformed distinctly grated out these metallic syllables what have you done with my bag end of chapter twenty two Chapter Twenty Three of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux, translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: The Tortures Begin. The Persian's narrative continued. The voice repeated angrily, "What have you done with my bag? So it was to take my bag that you asked me to release you." We heard hurried steps. Christine running back to the Louis-Philippe room as though to seek shelter on the other side of our wall. "'What are you running away for?' asked the furious voice which had followed her. "'Give me back my bag, will you? Don't you know that it is the bag of life and death?' "'Listen to me, Eric,' sighed the girl. "'As it is settled that we are to live together, what difference can it make to you?' you know there are only two keys in it said the monster what do you want to do i want to look at this room which i have never seen and which you have always kept from me it's woman's curiosity she said in a tone which she tried to render playful but the trick was too childish for eric to be taken in by it i don't like curious women he retorted and you had better remember the story of bluebeard and be careful come give me back my bag give me back my bag leave the key alone will you you inquisitive little thing and he chuckled while christine gave a cry of pain eric had evidently recovered the bag from her at that moment the viscount could not help uttering an exclamation of impotent rage why what's that said the monster did you hear christine no no replied the poor girl i heard nothing i thought i heard a cry a cry are you going mad eric whom do you expect to give a cry in this house i cried out because you hurt me i heard nothing i don't like the way you said that you're trembling you're quite excited you're lying that was a cry there was a cry there is someone in the torture chamber ah i understand now there is no one there eric i understand 
no one the man you want to marry perhaps i don't want to marry anybody you know i don't another nasty chuckle well it won't take long to find out christine my love we need not open the door to see what is happening in the torture chamber would you like to see look here if there is someone if there is really someone there you will see the invisible window light up at the top near the ceiling we need only draw the black curtain and put out the light in here there that's it let's put out the light you're not afraid of the dark when you're with your little husband then we heard christine's voice of anguish no i'm frightened i tell you i'm afraid of the dark i don't care about that room now you're always frightening me like a child with your torture chamber and so i became inquisitive but i don't care about it now not a bit not a bit and that which i feared above all things began automatically we were suddenly flooded with light yes on our side of the wall everything seemed aglow the vicomte de chagny was so much taken aback that he staggered and the angry voice roared i told you there was someone do you see the window now the lighted window right up there the man behind the wall can't see it but you shall go up the folding steps that is what they are there for you have often asked me to tell you and now you know they are there to give a peep into the torture chamber you inquisitive little thing what tortures who is being tortured eric eric say you are only trying to frighten me say it if you love me eric there are no tortures are there go and look at the little window dear i do not know if the viscount heard the girl's swooning voice for he was too much occupied by the astounding spectacle that now appeared before his distracted gaze as for me i had seen that sight too often through the little window at the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan and i cared only for what was being said next door seeking for a hint how to act what resolution to take go and peep through the little window tell me what he looks like we heard the steps being dragged against the wall up with you no no i will go up myself dear oh very well i will go up let me go oh my darling my darling how sweet of you how nice of you to save me the exertion at my age tell me what he looks like at that moment we distinctly heard these words above our heads there is no one there dear no one are you sure there is no one why of course not no one well that's all right what's the matter christine you're not going to faint are you as there is no one there here come down there pull yourself together as there is no one there but how do you like the landscape oh very much there that's better you're better now are you not that's all right you're better no excitement and what a funny house isn't it with landscapes like that in it yes it's like the mussy griven but say eric there are no tortures in there what a fright you gave me why as there is no one there did you design that room it's very handsome you're a great artist eric 
Yes, a great artist in my own line. But tell me, Eric, why did you call that room the torture chamber? Oh, it's very simple. First of all, what did you see? I saw a forest. And what is in a forest? Trees. And what is in a tree? Birds. Did you see any birds? No, I did not see any birds. Well, what did you see? Think. You saw branches, and what are the branches? asked the terrible voice. There's a gibbet. That is why I call my wood the torture chamber. You see, it's all a joke. I never express myself like other people, but I am very tired of it. I am sick and tired of having a forest and a torture chamber in my house, and of living like a mountebank in a house with a false bottom. I'm tired of it. I want to have a nice, quiet flat, with ordinary doors and windows, and a wife inside it, like everybody else, a wife whom I could love and take out on Sundays and keep amused on weekdays. Here, shall I show you some card tricks? That will help us to pass a few minutes while waiting for eleven o'clock tomorrow evening. My dear little Christine, are you listening to me? Tell me you love me. No, you don't love me. But no matter, you will. Once you could not look at my mask because you knew what was behind, and now you don't mind looking at it, you forget what is behind. One can get used to everything, if one wishes. Plenty of young people who did not care for each other before marriage have adored each other since. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but you would have lots of fun with me. For instance, I am the greatest ventriloquist that ever lived. I am the first ventriloquist in the world. You're laughing. Perhaps you don't believe me. Listen. The wretch, who really was the first ventriloquist in the world, was only trying to divert the child's attention from the torture chamber. But it was a stupid scheme, for Christine thought of nothing but us. She repeatedly besought him in the gentlest tones which she could assume. Put out the light in the little window. Eric, do put out the light in the little window. For she saw that this light, which appeared so suddenly, and of which the monster had spoken in so threatening a voice, must mean something terrible. One thing must have pacified her for a moment, and that was seeing the two of us behind the wall, in the midst of that resplendent light, alive and well. But she would certainly have felt much easier if the light had been put out. Meantime the other had already begun to play the ventriloquist. He said, Here, I raise my mask a little. Oh, only a little. You see my lips, such lips as I have. They're not moving. My mouth is closed, such mouth as I have, and yet you hear my voice. Where will you have it? In your left ear? In your right ear? In the table? In those little ebony boxes on the mantelpiece? Listen, dear, it's in the little box on the right of the mantelpiece. What does it say? Shall I turn the scorpion? And now, crack, what does it say in the little box on the left? Shall I turn the grasshopper? And now, crack, here it is in the little leather bag. What does it say? I am the little bag of life and death. And now, crack, 
it is in carlotta's throat in carlotta's golden throat in carlotta's crystal throat as i live what does it say it says it's i mr toad it's i singing i feel without alarm coack with its melody enwind me coack and now crack it is on a chair in the ghost's box and it says madame carlotta is singing to-night to bring the chandelier down and now crack aha where is eric's voice now listen christine darling listen it is behind the door of the torture chamber listen it's myself in the torture chamber and what do i say i say woe to them that have a nose a real nose and come to look around the torture chamber <laughs> oh the ventriloquist's terrible voice it was everywhere everywhere it passed through the little invisible window through the walls it ran around us between us eric was there speaking to us we made a movement as though to fling ourselves upon him but already swifter more fleeting than the voice of the echo eric's voice had leaped back behind the wall soon we heard nothing more at all for this is what happened eric eric said christine's voice you tire me with your voice don't go on eric isn't it very hot here oh yes replied eric's voice the heat is unendurable but what does this mean the wall is really getting quite hot the wall is burning i'll tell you christine dear it is because of the forest next door well what has that to do with it the forest why didn't you see that it was an african forest <laughs> and the monster laughed so loudly and hideously that we could no longer distinguish christine's supplicating cries the vicomte de chagny shouted and banged against the walls like a madman i could not restrain him but we heard nothing except the monster's laughter and the monster himself can have heard nothing else and then there was the sound of a body falling on the floor and being dragged along and the door slammed and then nothing nothing more around us save the scorching silence of the south in the heart of a tropical forest end of chapter twenty three chapter twenty four of the phantom of the opera by gaston larue translated by alexander tezera de matos this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty four barrels barrels any barrels to sell the persian's narrative continued i have said that the room in which monsieur le vicomte de chagny and i were imprisoned was a regular hexagon lined entirely with mirrors plenty of these rooms have been seen since mainly at exhibitions they are called palaces of illusion or some such name but the invention belongs entirely to eric who built the first room of this kind under my eyes at the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan a decorative object such as a column for instance was placed in one of the corners 
and immediately produced a hall of a thousand columns, for thanks to the mirrors the real room was multiplied by six hexagonal rooms, each of which in its turn was multiplied indefinitely. But the little sultana soon tired of this infantile illusion, whereupon Eric altered his invention into a torture-chamber. For the architectural motif placed in one corner, he substituted an iron tree. This tree, with its painted leaves, was absolutely true to life, and was made of iron so as to resist all the attacks of the patient who was locked into the torture-chamber. We shall see how the scene thus obtained was twice altered instantaneously into two successive other scenes by means of the automatic rotation of the drums or rollers in the corners. These were divided into three sections, fitting into the angles of the mirrors, and each supporting a decorative scheme that came into sight as the roller revolved upon its axis. The walls of this strange room gave the patient nothing to lay hold of, because, apart from the solid decorative object, they were simply furnished with mirrors, thick enough to withstand any onslaught of the victim who was flung into the chamber empty-handed and barefoot. There was no furniture, the ceiling was capable of being lit up, an ingenious system of electric heating, which has since been imitated, allowed the temperature of the walls and room to be increased at will. I am giving all these details of a perfectly natural invention, producing, with a few painted branches, the supernatural illusion of an equatorial forest blazing under the tropical sun, so that no one may doubt the present balance of my brain, or feel entitled to say that I am mad or lying, or that I take him for a fool. I now return to the facts where I left them. When the ceiling lit up and the forest became visible round us, the Viscount's stupefaction was immense. That impenetrable forest, with its innumerable trunks and branches, threw him into a terrible state of consternation. He passed his hands over his forehead, as though to drive away a dream. His eyes blinked, and for a moment he forgot to listen. I have already said that the sight of the forest did not surprise me at all, and therefore I listened for the two of us to what was happening next door. Lastly, my attention was especially attracted not so much to the scene as to the mirrors that produced it. These mirrors were broken in parts. Yes, they were marked and scratched. They had been starred in spite of their solidity, and thus proved to me that the torture-chamber in which we now were had already served a purpose. Yes, some wretch, whose feet were not bare like those of the victims of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, had certainly fallen into this mortal illusion, and mad with rage had kicked against those mirrors, which nevertheless continued to reflect his agony and the branch of the tree on which he had put an end to his own sufferings was arranged in such a way that before dying he had seen for his last consolation a thousand men writhing in his company. Yes, Joseph Bouquet had undoubtedly been through all this. Were we to die as he had done? I did not think so, for I knew that we had a few hours before us, and that I could employ them to better purpose than Joseph Bouquet was able to do. After all, I was thoroughly acquainted with most of Eric's tricks, and now or never was the time to turn my knowledge to account. To begin with, 
I gave up every idea of returning to the passage that had brought us to that accursed chamber. I did not trouble about the possibility of working the inside stone that closed the passage, and this for the simple reason that to do so was out of the question. We had dropped from too great a height into the torture chamber. There was no furniture to help us reach that passage, not even the branch of the iron tree, not even each other's shoulders were of any avail. There was only one possible outlet, that opening into the Louis Philippe room in which Eric and Christine Day were. But though this outlet looked like an ordinary door on Christine's side, it was absolutely invisible to us. We must therefore try to open it without even knowing where it was. When I was quite sure that there was no hope for us from Christine Day's side, when I had heard the monster dragging the poor girl from the Louis Philippe room, lest she should interfere with our tortures, I resolved to set to work without delay. But I had first to calm Monsieur de Chagny, who was already walking about like a madman, uttering incoherent cries. The snatches of conversation which he had caught between Christine and the monster had contributed not a little to drive him beside himself. Add to that the shock of the magic forest, and the scorching heat which was beginning to make the perspiration stream down his temples, and you will have no difficulty in understanding his state of mind. He shouted Christine's name, brandished his pistol, knocked his forehead against the glass in his endeavors to run down the glades of the elusive forest. In short, the torture was beginning to work its spell upon a brain unprepared for it. I did my best to induce the poor Viscount to listen to reason. I made him touch the mirrors and the iron tree and the branches, and explain to him by optical laws all the luminous imagery by which we were surrounded, and of which we need not allow ourselves to be the victims, like ordinary ignorant people. We are in a room, a little room, that is what you must keep saying to yourself, and we shall leave the room as soon as we have found the door and I promised him that if he let me act without disturbing me by shouting and walking up and down, I would discover the trick of the door in less than an hour's time. Then he lay flat on the floor, as one does in a wood, and declared that he would wait until I found the door of the forest, as there was nothing better to do, and he added that from where he was, the view was splendid, the torture was working, in spite of all that I had said. Myself, forgetting the forest, I tackled a glass panel, and began to finger it in every direction, hunting for the weak point on which to press, in order to turn the door in accordance with Eric's system of pivots. This weak point might be a mere speck on the glass, no larger than a pea, under which the spring lay hidden. I hunted and hunted. I felt as high as my hands could reach. Eric was about the same height as myself, and I thought that he would not have placed the spring higher than suited his stature. While groping over the successive panels with the greatest care, I endeavored not to lose a minute, for I was feeling more and more overcome with the heat, and we were literally roasting in that blazing forest. I had been working like this for half an hour, and had finished three panels, when, as ill luck would have it, I turned round on hearing a muttered exclamation from the Viscount. "'I'm stifling,' he said. "'All those mirrors are sending out an infernal heat. Do you think you will find that spring soon? 
if you are much longer about it we shall be roasted alive i was not sorry to hear him talk like this he had not said a word of the forest and i hoped that my companion's reason would hold out some time longer against the torture but he added what consoles me is that the monster has given christine until eleven to-morrow evening if we can't get out of here and go to her assistance at least we shall be dead before her then eric's mask can serve for all of us and he gulped down a breath of hot air that nearly made him faint as i had not the same desperate reasons as monsieur le vicomte for accepting death i returned after giving him a word of encouragement to my panel but i had made the mistake of taking a few steps while speaking and in the tangle of the elusive forest i was no longer able to find my panel for certain i had to begin all over again at random feeling fumbling groping now the fever laid hold of me in my turn for i found nothing absolutely nothing in the next room all was silence we were quite lost in the forest without an outlet a compass a guide or anything oh i knew what awaited us if nobody came to our aid or if i did not find the spring but look as i might i found nothing but branches beautiful branches that stood straight up before me or spread gracefully over my head but they gave no shade and this was natural enough as we were in an equatorial forest with the sun right above our heads an african forest monsieur de chagny and i had repeatedly taken off our coats and put them on again finding at one time that they made us feel still hotter and at another that they protected us against the heat i was still making a moral resistance but monsieur de chagny seemed to me quite gone he pretended that he had been walking in that forest for three days and nights without stopping looking for christine day from time to time he thought he saw her behind the trunk of a tree or gliding between the branches and he called to her with words of supplication that brought the tears to my eyes and then at last oh how thirsty i am he cried in delirious accents i too was thirsty my throat was on fire and yet squatting on the floor i went on hunting 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 for the spring of the invisible door especially as it was dangerous to remain in the forest as evening drew nigh already the shades of night were beginning to surround us it had happened very quickly night falls quickly in tropical countries suddenly with hardly any twilight now night in the forests of the equator is always dangerous particularly when like ourselves one has not the materials for a fire to keep off the beasts of prey i did indeed try for a moment to break off the branches which i would have lit with my dark lantern but i knocked myself also against the mirrors and remembered in time that we had only images of branches to do with the heat did not go with the daylight on the contrary it was now still hotter under the blue rays of the moon i urged the viscount to hold our weapons ready to fire and not to stray from camp while i went on looking for my spring suddenly we heard a lion roaring a few yards away oh whispered the viscount he is quite close don't you see him there through the trees in that thicket if he roars again i will fire 
and the roaring began again, louder than before, and the Viscount fired, but I do not think that he hit the lion. Only he smashed a mirror, as I perceived the next morning at daybreak. We must have covered a good distance during the night, for we suddenly found ourselves on the edge of the desert, an immense desert of sand, stones, and rocks. It was really not worth while leaving the forest to come upon the desert. Tired out, I flung myself down beside the Viscount, for I had had enough of looking for springs which I could not find. I was quite surprised, and I said so to the Viscount, that we had encountered no other dangerous animals during the night. Usually, after the lion came, the leopard, and sometimes the buzz of the tsetse fly. These were easily obtained effects, and I explained to Monsieur de Chagny that Eric imitated the roar of a lion on a long tabor, or timbrel, with an ass's skin at one end. Over this skin he tied a string of catgut, which was fastened at the middle to another similar string passing through the whole length of the tabor. Eric had only to rub this string with a glove smeared with resin, and according to the manner in which he rubbed it, he imitated to perfection the voice of the lion or the leopard, or even the buzzing of the tsetse fly. The idea that Eric was probably in the room beside us, working his trick, made me suddenly resolve to enter into a parley with him, for we must obviously give up all thought of taking him by surprise, and by this time he must be quite aware who were the occupants of his torture chamber. I called him, Eric, Eric! I shouted as loudly as I could across the desert, but there was no answer to my voice. All around us lay the silence and the bare immensity of that stony desert. What was to become of us in the midst of that awful solitude? We were beginning literally to die of heat, hunger, and thirst, of thirst especially. At last I saw Monsieur de Chagny raise himself on his elbow and point to a spot on the horizon. He had discovered an oasis. Yes, far in the distance was an oasis, an oasis with limpid water, which reflected the iron trees. Tush! It was the scene of the mirage. I recognized it at once, the worst of the three. No one had been able to fight against it. No one. I did my utmost to keep my head and not to hope for water, because I knew that if a man hoped for water, the water that reflected the iron tree, and if, after hoping for water, he struck against the mirror, then there was only one thing for him to do, to hang himself on the iron tree. So I cried to Monsieur de Chagny, "'It's the mirage! It's the mirage! Don't believe in the water! It's another trick of the mirrors!' Then he flatly told me to shut up, with my tricks of the mirrors, my springs, my revolving doors, and my palaces of illusions. He angrily declared that I must be either blind or mad to imagine that all that water flowing over there among those splendid numberless trees was not real water, and the desert was real, and so was the forest, and it was no use trying to take him in. He was an old experienced traveller. He had been all over the place, and he dragged himself along, saying, "'Water! Water!' And his mouth was open as though he were drinking, and my mouth was open too as though I were drinking. For we not only saw the water, but we heard it. We heard it flow. We heard it ripple. Do you understand that word, ripple? 
it is a sound which you hear with your tongue you put your tongue out of your mouth to listen to it better lastly and this was the most pitiless torture of all we heard the rain and it was not raining this was an infernal invention oh i knew well enough how eric obtained it he filled with little stones a very long and narrow box broken up inside with wooden and metal projections the stones in falling struck against these projections and rebounded from one to another and the result was a series of pattering sounds that exactly imitated a rainstorm. Ah, you should have seen us putting out our tongues and dragging ourselves toward the rippling river bank. Our eyes and ears were full of water, but our tongues were hard and dry as horn. When we reached the mirror, Monsieur de Chagny licked it, and I also licked the glass. It was burning hot then we rolled on the floor with a hoarse cry of despair monsieur de chagny put the one pistol that was still loaded to his temple and i stared at the punjab lasso at the foot of the iron tree i knew why the iron tree had returned in this third change of scene the iron tree was waiting for me but as i stared at the punjab lasso i saw a thing that made me start so violently that monsieur de chagny delayed his attempt at suicide i took his arm and then i caught the pistol from him and then i dragged myself on my knees toward what i had seen i had discovered near the punjab lasso in a groove in the floor a black-headed nail of which i knew the use at last i had discovered the spring i felt the nail i lifted a radiant face to monsieur de chagny the black-headed nail yielded to my pressure and then and then we saw not a door opened in the wall but a cellar flap released in the floor cool air came up to us from the black hole below we stooped over that square of darkness as though over a limpid well with our chins in the cool shade we drank it in and we bent lower and lower over the trap-door what could there be in that cellar which opened before us water water to drink i thrust my arm into the darkness and came upon a stone and another stone a staircase a dark staircase leading into the cellar the viscount wanted to fling himself down the hole but i fearing a new trick of the monsters stopped him turned on my dark lantern and went down first the staircase was a winding one and led down into pitchy darkness but oh how deliciously cool were the darkness and the stairs the lake could not be far away we soon reached the bottom our eyes were beginning to accustom themselves to the dark to distinguish shapes around us circular shapes on which i turned the light of my lantern barrels we were in eric's cellar it was here that he must keep his wine and perhaps his drinking water i knew that eric was a great lover of good wine ah there was plenty to drink here monsieur de chagny patted the round shapes and kept on saying barrels barrels what a lot of barrels indeed there was quite a number of them symmetrically arranged in two rows one on either side of us they were small barrels, and I thought that Eric must have selected them of that size to facilitate their carriage to the house on the lake. 
we examined them successively to see if one of them had not a funnel showing that it had been tapped at some time or another but all the barrels were hermetically closed then after half lifting one to make sure it was full we went on our knees and with the blade of a small knife which i carried i prepared to stave in the bunghole at that moment i seemed to hear coming from very far a sort of monotonous chant which i knew well from often hearing it in the streets of paris barrels barrels any barrels to sell my hand desisted from its work monsieur de chagny had also heard he said that's funny it sounds as if the barrel were singing the song was renewed farther away barrels barrels any barrels to sell oh i swear said the viscount that the tune dies away in the barrel we stood up and went to look behind the barrel it's inside said monsieur de chagny it's inside but we heard nothing there and were driven to accuse the bad condition of our senses and we returned to the bunghole Monsieur de Chagny put his two hands together underneath it, and with a last effort I burst the bung. "'What's this?' cried the Viscount. "'This isn't water!' The Viscount put his two full hands close to my lantern. I stooped to look, and at once threw away the lantern with such violence that it broke and went out, leaving us in utter darkness. What I had seen in Monsieur de Chagny's hands was gunpowder.' End of chapter 24
for after all eleven o'clock to-morrow evening might be now, might be this very moment. Who could tell us the time? We seem to have been imprisoned in that hell for days and days, for years, since the beginning of the world. Perhaps we should be blown up then and there. Ah, a sound, a crack. Did you hear that? There, in the corner. Good heavens, like a sound of machinery. Again. Oh, for a light. Perhaps it's the machinery that is to blow everything up. I tell you a cracking sound. Are you deaf? Monsieur de Chagny and I began to yell like madmen. Fear spurred us on. We rushed up the treads of the staircase, stumbling as we went, anything to escape the dark, to return to the mortal light of the room of mirrors. We found the trap-door still open, but it was now as dark in the room of mirrors as in the cellar which we had left. We dragged ourselves along the floor of the torture-chamber, the floor that separated us from the powder-magazine. What was the time? We shouted, we called. Monsieur de Chagny to Christine, I to Eric. I reminded him that I had saved his life, but no answer, save that of our despair, of our madness. What was the time? We argued, we tried to calculate the time which we had spent there, but we were incapable of reasoning. If only we could see the face of a watch! Mine had stopped, but Monsieur de Chagny's was still going. He told me that he had wound it up before dressing for the opera. We had not a match upon us, and yet we must know. Monsieur de Chagny broke the glass of his watch and felt the two hands. He questioned the hands of the watch with his fingertips, going by the position of the ring of the watch. Judging by the space between the hands, he thought it might be just eleven o'clock. But perhaps it was not the eleven o'clock of which we stood in dread. Perhaps we had still twelve hours before us. Suddenly I exclaimed, Hush! I seemed to hear footsteps in the next room. Someone tapped against the wall. Christine Day's voice said, Raoul! Raoul! We were now all talking at once, on either side of the wall. Christine sobbed. She was not sure that she would find Monsieur de Chagny alive. The monster had been terrible, it seemed, had done nothing but rave, waiting for her to give him the yes which she refused. And yet she had promised him that yes, if he would take her to the torture-chamber. But he had obstinately declined, and had uttered hideous threats against all the members of the human race. At last, after hours and hours of that hell, he had that moment gone out leaving her alone to reflect for the last time. Hours, hours, what is the time now? What is the time, Christine? It is eleven o'clock, eleven o'clock, all but five minutes. But which eleven o'clock? The eleven o'clock that is to decide life or death. He told me so just before he went. He is terrible. He is quite mad. He tore off his mask, and his yellow eyes shot flames. He did nothing but laugh. He said, I give you five minutes to spare your blushes. Here, he said, taking a key from the little bag of life and death, here is the little bronze key that opens the two ebony caskets on the mantelpiece in the Louis Philippe room. In one of the caskets you will find a scorpion. In the other, a grasshopper. 
both very cleverly imitated in Japanese bronze, they will say yes or no for you. If you turn the scorpion round, that will mean to me, when I return, that you have said yes. The grasshopper will mean no. And he laughed like a drunken demon. I did nothing but beg and entreat him to give me the key of the torture chamber, promising to be his wife if he granted me that request. But he told me that there was no future need for that key, and that he was going to throw it into the lake and he again laughed like a drunken demon and left me oh his last words were the grasshopper be careful of the grasshopper a grasshopper does not only turn it hops it hops and it hops jolly high the five minutes had nearly elapsed and the scorpion and the grasshopper were scratching at my brain nevertheless i had sufficient lucidity left to understand that if the grasshopper were turned it would hop and with it many members of the human race there was no doubt but that the grasshopper controlled an electric current intended to blow up the powder magazine monsieur de chagny who seemed to have recovered all his moral force from hearing christine's voice explained to her in a few hurried words the situation in which we and all the opera were he told her to turn the scorpion at once there was a pause christine i cried where are you by the scorpion don't touch it the idea had come to me for i knew my eric that the monster had perhaps deceived the girl once more. Perhaps it was the scorpion that would blow everything up. After all, why wasn't he there? The five minutes were long past, and he was not back. Perhaps he had taken shelter, and was waiting for the explosion. Why had he not returned? He could not really expect Christine ever to consent to become his voluntary prey. Why had he not returned? "'Don't touch the scorpion,' I said. "'Here he comes,' cried Christine. "'I hear him. Here he is.' We heard his steps approaching the Louis-Philippe room. He came up to Christine, but did not speak. Then I raised my voice. "'Eric, it is I. Do you know me?' With extraordinary calmness he at once replied, "'So you are not dead in there. Well, then, see that you keep quiet.' I tried to speak, but he said coldly, Not a word, Daroga, or I shall blow everything up. And he added, The honor rests with Mamselle. Mamselle has not touched the scorpion. How deliberately he spoke. Mamselle has not touched the grasshopper with that composure. But it is not too late to do the right thing. There, I open the caskets without a key, for I am a trap-door lover, and I open and shut what I please and as I please. I open the little ebony caskets. Mamselle, look at the little dears inside. Aren't they pretty? If you turn the grasshopper, Mamselle, we shall all be blown up. There is enough gunpowder under our feet to blow up a whole quarter of Paris. If you turn the scorpion, Mamselle, all that powder will be soaked and drowned. Mamselle, to celebrate our wedding you shall make a very handsome present to a few hundred Parisians who are at this moment applauding a poor masterpiece of Meyerbeer's. 
you shall make them a present of their lives, for with your own fair hands you shall turn the scorpion, and merrily, merrily, we will be married. A pause, and then, if in two minutes, mamselle, you have not turned the scorpion, I shall turn the grasshopper, and the grasshopper, I tell you, hops jolly high. The terrible silence began anew. The Vicomte de Chagny, realizing that there was nothing left to do but pray, went down on his knees and prayed. As for me, my blood beat so fiercely that I had to take my heart in both hands lest it should burst. At last we heard Eric's voice. The two minutes are past. Good-bye, mademoiselle. Hop, grasshopper. Eric, cried Christine. Do you swear to me, monster? Do you swear to me that the scorpion is the one to turn? Yes, to hop at our wedding. Ah, oh, you see, you said to hop. At our wedding, ingenuous child. The scorpion opens the ball. But that will do. You won't have the scorpion. Then I turn the grasshopper. Eric! Enough! I was crying out in concert with Christine. Monsieur de Chagny was still on his knees praying. Eric, I have turned the scorpion. Oh, the second through which we passed, waiting, waiting to find ourselves in fragments amid the roar and the ruins, feeling something crack beneath our feet, hearing an appalling hiss through the open trap-door, a hiss like the first sound of a rocket. It came softly at first, then louder, then very loud, but it was not the hiss of fire, it was more like the hiss of water, and now it became a gurgling sound, guggle, guggle. We rushed to the trap-door, all our thirst, which vanished when the terror came, now returned with the lapping of the water. The water rose in the cellar, above the barrels, the powder-barrels, barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell and we went down to it with parched throats. It rose to our chins, to our mouths, and we drank. We stood on the floor of the cellar and drank, and we went up the stairs again in the dark, step by step, went up with the water. The water came out of the cellar with us and spread over the floor of the room. If this went on, the whole house on the lake would be swamped. The floor of the torture chamber had itself become a regular little lake in which our feet splashed. Surely there was water enough now. Eric must turn off the tap. Eric, Eric, that is water enough for the gunpowder. Turn off the tap. Turn off the scorpion. But Eric did not reply. We heard nothing but the water rising. It was halfway to our waists. Christine! cried Monsieur de Chagny. Christine, the water is up to our knees. But Christine did not reply. We heard nothing but the water rising. No one, no one in the next room, no one to turn the tap, no one to turn the scorpion. We were all alone in the dark, with the dark water that seized us and clasped us and froze us. Eric, Eric, Christine, Christine. By this time we had lost our foothold and were spinning round in the water, 
carried away by an irresistible whirl, for the water turned with us and dashed us against the dark mirror, which thrust us back again, and our throats, raised above the whirlpool, roared aloud. Were we to die here, drowned in the torture chamber? I had never seen that. Eric, at the time of the rosy hours of Mazenderan, had never shown me that, through the little invisible window. "'Eric! Eric!' I cried. "'I saved your life. Remember, you were sentenced to death. But for me you would be dead now. Eric!' We whirled around in the water like so much wreckage. But suddenly my straying hand seized the trunk of the iron tree. I called Monsieur de Chagny, and we both hung to the branch of the iron tree. And the water rose still higher. Oh, oh, can you remember how much space is there between the branch of the tree and the dome-shaped ceiling? Do try to remember. After all, the water may stop. It must find its level. There, I think it is stopping. No, no, oh, horrible! Swim, swim for your life! Our arms became entangled in the effort of swimming. We choked. We fought in the dark water. Already we could hardly breathe the dark air above the dark water, the air which escaped, which we could hear escaping through some vent hole or other. Oh, let us turn and turn and turn until we find the air hole and then glue our mouths to it. But I lost my strength. I tried to lay hold of the walls. Oh, how those glass walls slipped from under my groping fingers. We whirled round again. We began to sink. One last effort, a last cry. Eric! Christine! Goggle, goggle, goggle in our ears. Goggle, goggle. At the bottom of the dark water our ears went goggle, goggle, and before losing consciousness entirely I seemed to hear between two goggles, barrels, barrels, any barrels to sell. End of chapter 25Chapter Twenty Six of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six The End of the Ghost's Love Story. The previous chapter marks the conclusion of the written narrative which the Persian left behind him. Notwithstanding the horrors of a situation which seemed definitely to abandon them to their deaths, Monsieur de Chagny and his companion were saved by the sublime devotion of Christine Day, and I had the rest of the story from the lips of the Daroga himself. When I went to see him, he was still living in his little flat in the Rue de Rivoli, opposite the Tuileries. He was very ill, and it required all my ardor as an historian pledged to the truth to persuade him to live the incredible tragedy over again for my benefit. His faithful old servant Darius showed me in to him. The Daroga received me at a window overlooking the garden of the Tuileries. He still had his magnificent eyes, but his poor face looked very worn. He had shaved the whole of his head, which was usually covered with an astrakhan cap. He was dressed in a long, plain coat, and amused himself by unconsciously twisting his thumbs inside the sleeves. But his mind was quite clear and he told me his story with perfect lucidity. 
It seems that when he opened his eyes, the Daroga found himself lying on a bed. Monsieur de Chagny was on a sofa beside the wardrobe. An angel and a devil were watching over them. After the deceptions and illusions of the torture chamber, the precision of the details of that quiet little middle-class room seemed to have been invented for the express purpose of puzzling the mind of the mortal rash enough to stray into that abode of living nightmare. The wooden bedstead, the waxed mahogany chairs, the chest of drawers, those brasses, the little square antimacassars carefully placed on the backs of the chairs, the clock on the mantelpiece, and the harmless-looking ebony caskets at either end, lastly the what-not filled with shells, with red pin-cushions, with mother-of-pearl boats, and an enormous ostrich egg, the whole discreetly lighted by a shaded lamp standing on a small round table. This collection of ugly, peaceable, reasonable furniture at the bottom of the opera cellars bewildered the imagination more than all the late fantastic happenings, and the figure of the masked man seemed all the more formidable in this old-fashioned, neat and trim little frame. It bent down over the Persian and said in his ear, "'Are you better, Daroga? You are looking at my furniture. It is all that I have left of my poor, unhappy mother.' Christine Day did not say a word. She moved about noiselessly, like a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence. She brought a cup of cordial, or of hot tea, he did not remember which. The man in the mask took it from her hands and gave it to the Persian. Monsieur de Chagny was still sleeping. Eric poured a drop of rum into the Daroga's cup, and pointing to the Viscount said, "'He came to himself long before we knew if you were still alive, Daroga. He is quite well.' He is asleep. We must not wake him. Eric left the room for a moment, and the Persian raised himself on his elbow, looked around him, and saw Christine Day sitting by the fireside. He spoke to her, called her, but he was still very weak, and fell back on his pillow. Christine came to him, laid her hand on his forehead, and went away again and the Persian remembered that, as she went, she did not give a glance at Monsieur de Chagny, who, it is true, was sleeping peacefully, and she sat down again in her chair by the chimney-corner, silent as a sister of charity who had taken a vow of silence. Eric returned with some little bottles which he placed on the mantelpiece, and again in a whisper, so as not to wake Monsieur de Chagny, he said to the Persian, after sitting down and feeling his pulse, "'You are now saved, both of you, and soon I shall take you up to the surface of the earth to please my wife.' Thereupon he rose without any further explanation and disappeared once more. The Persian now looked at Christine's quiet profile under the lamp. She was reading a tiny book with gilt edges, like a religious book. There are editions of the imitation that look like that. The Persian still had in his ears the natural tone in which the other had said, To please my wife. Very gently he called her again, but Christine was wrapped up in her book and did not hear him. Eric returned, mixed the Duroga a draught, and advised him not to speak to his wife again, nor to anyone because it might be very dangerous to everybody's health. Eventually the Persian fell asleep. 
like Monsieur de Chagny, and did not wake until he was in his own room, nursed by his faithful Darius, who told him that on the night before he was found propped against the door of his flat, where he had been brought by a stranger, who rang the bell before going away. As soon as the Daroga recovered his strength and his wits, he sent to Count Felipe's house to inquire after the Viscount's health. The answer was that the young man had not been seen, and that Count Felipe was dead. His body was found on the bank of the Opera Lake, on the Rue Scribe side. The Persian remembered the requiem mass which he had heard from behind the wall of the torture chamber, and had no doubt concerning the crime and the criminal. Knowing Eric as he did, he easily reconstructed the tragedy. Thinking that his brother had run away with Christine Day, Philippe had dashed in pursuit of him along the Brussels road, where he knew that everything was prepared for the elopement. Failing to find the pair, he hurried back to the opera, remembered Raoul's strange confidence about his fantastic rival, and learned that the Viscount had made every effort to enter the cellars of the theatre, and that he had disappeared, leaving his hat in the prima donna's dressing-room, beside an empty pistol-case, and the Count, who no longer entertained any doubt of his brother's madness, in his turn darted into that infernal underground maze. This was enough, in the Persian's eyes, to explain the discovery of the Comte de Chagny's corpse on the shore of the lake where the siren, Eric's siren, kept watch. The Persian did not hesitate. He determined to inform the police. Now the case was in the hands of an examining magistrate called For, an incredulous, commonplace, superficial sort of person. I write, as I think, with a mind utterly unprepared to receive a confidence of this kind. Monsieur For took down the Doroga's depositions and proceeded to treat him as a madman. Despairing of ever obtaining a hearing, the Persian sat down to write. As the police did not want his evidence, perhaps the press would be glad of it, and he had just written the last line of the narrative I have quoted in the preceding chapters when Darius announced the visit of a stranger who refused his name, who would not show his face, and declared simply that he did not intend to leave the place until he had spoken to the Daroga. The Persian at once felt who his singular visitor was and ordered him to be shown in. The Daroga was right. It was the ghost. It was Eric. He looked extremely weak and leaned against the wall as though he were afraid of falling. Taking off his hat, he revealed a forehead white as wax. The rest of the horrible face was hidden by the mask. The Persian rose to his feet as Eric entered. Murderer of Count Philippe, what have you done with his brother and Christine Day? Eric staggered under this direct attack, kept silent for a moment, dragged himself to a chair and heaved a deep sigh, then speaking in short phrases and gasping for breath between the words, Daroga, don't talk to me about Count Philippe. He was dead. By the time I left my house, he was dead when the siren sang. It was an accident, a sad, a very sad accident. He fell very awkwardly, but simply and naturally, into the lake. "'You lie!' shouted the Persian. Eric bowed his head and said, "'I have not come here to talk about Count Philippe, but to tell you that 
I am going to, to die. Where are Raoul de Chagny and Christine Day? I am going to die. Raoul de Chagny and Christine Day. Of love, Daroga, I am dying of love. That is how it is. Loved her so, and I love her still, Daroga, and I am dying of love for her. I, I tell you, if you knew how beautiful she was, when she let me kiss her, alive, it was the first time, Daroga, the first time I ever kissed a woman. Yes, alive. I kissed her alive, and she looked as beautiful as if she had been dead. The Persian shook Eric by the arm. Will you tell me if she is alive or dead? Why do you shake me like that? asked Eric, making an effort to speak more connectedly. I tell you that I am going to die. Yes, I kissed her alive. And now she is dead? I tell you I kissed her just like that on her forehead, and she did not draw back her forehead from my lips. Oh, she is a good girl. As to her being dead, I don't think so, but it has nothing to do with me. No, no, she is not dead, and no one shall touch a hair of her head. She is a good, honest girl, and she saved your life, Daroga at a moment when I would not have given twopence for your Persian skin. As a matter of fact, nobody bothered about you. Why were you there with that little chap? You would have died as well as he. My word, how she entreated me for her little chap! But I told her that, as she had turned the scorpion, she had, through that very fact and of her own free will, become engaged to me, and that she did not need to have two men engaged to her, which was true enough. As for you, you did not exist. You had ceased to exist, I tell you, and you were going to die with the other. Only mark me, Daroga, when you were yelling like the devil because of the water, Christine came to me with her beautiful blue eyes wide open, and swore to me, as she hoped to be saved, that she consented to be my living wife. Until then, in the depths of her eyes, Daroga, I had always seen my dead wife. It was the first time I saw my living wife there. She was sincere, as she hoped to be saved. She would not kill herself. It was a bargain. Half a minute later all the water was back in the lake, and I had a hard job with you, Daroga, for, upon my honor, I thought you were done for. However, there you were. It was understood that I was to take you both up to the surface of the earth. When at last I cleared the Louis-Philippe room of you, I came back alone. "'What have you done with the Vicomte de Chagny?' asked the Persian, interrupting him. "'Ah, you see, Daroga, I couldn't carry him up like that at once. He was a hostage, but I could not keep him in the house on the lake either, because of Christine. So I locked him up comfortably. I chained him up nicely.' A whiff of the Mazenderan scent had left him as limp as a rag in the communist dungeon, which is in the most deserted and remote part of the opera, below the fifth cellar, where no one ever comes, and where no one ever hears you. 
Then I came back to Christine. She was waiting for me. Eric here rose solemnly. Then he continued, but as he spoke he was overcome by all his former emotion and began to tremble like a leaf. Yes, she was waiting for me, waiting for me erect and alive, a real living bride, and she hoped to be saved. And when I came forward, more timid than a little child, she did not run away. No, no, she stayed. She waited for me. I even believed, Daroga, that she put out her forehead a little, oh, not much, just a little, like a living bride, and, and I kissed her. I, 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 and she did not die. Oh, how good it is, Daroga, to kiss somebody on the forehead. You can't tell. But I, I, my mother, Daroga, my poor unhappy mother would never let me kiss her. She used to run away and throw me my mask. Nor any other woman, ever, ever. Ah, oh, you can understand my happiness was so great, I cried, and I fell at her feet crying, and I kissed her feet, her little feet, crying. You're crying too, Daroga, and she cried also. The angel cried. Eric sobbed aloud, and the Persian himself could not retain his tears in the presence of that masked man, who, with his shoulders shaking and his hands clutched at his chest, was moaning with pain and love by turns. Yes, Daroga, I felt her tears flow on my forehead, on mine, mine. They were soft, they were sweet. They trickled under my mask. They mingled with my tears in my eyes. Yes, they flowed between my lips. Listen, Daroga, listen to what I did. I tore off my mask so as not to lose one of her tears. And she did not run away, and she did not die. She remained alive, weeping over me with me. We cried together. I have tasted all the happiness the world can offer. And Eric fell into a chair, choking for breath. Ah, oh, I am not going to die yet. Presently I shall. But let me cry. Listen, Daroga, listen to this. While I was at her feet, I heard her say, Poor unhappy Eric and she took my hand. I had become no more, you know, than a poor dog ready to die for her. I mean it, Daroga. I held in my hand a ring, a plain gold ring which I had given her, which she had lost, and which I had found again, a wedding ring, you know. I slipped it into her little hand and said, There, take it, take it for you and him. It shall be my wedding present, a present from your poor, unhappy Eric. I know you love the boy. Don't cry any more. She asked me in a very soft voice what I meant. Then I made her understand that where she was concerned I was only a poor dog, ready to die for her, but that she could marry the young man when she pleased, because she had cried with me and mingled her tears with mine. 
Eric's emotion was so great that he had to tell the Persian not to look at him, for he was choking and must take off his mask. The Daroga went to the window and opened it. His heart was full of pity, but he took care to keep his eyes fixed on the trees in the Tuleri's gardens, lest he should see the monster's face. "'I went and released the young man,' Eric continued, "'and told him to come with me to Christine. "'They kissed before me in the Louis-Philippe room. "'Christine had my ring. "'I made Christine swear to come back one night when I was dead, "'crossing the lake from the Rue Scribe's side, "'and bury me in the greatest secrecy "'with the gold ring which she was to wear until that moment.' I told her where she would find my body and what to do with it. Then Christine kissed me for the first time herself, here on the forehead. Don't look, Daroga. Here on the forehead. On my forehead. Mine. Don't look, Daroga. And they went off together. Christine had stopped crying. I alone cried. Daroga. Daroga. If Christine keeps her promise, she will come back soon. The Persian asked him no questions. He was quite reassured as to the fate of Raoul Chagny and Christine Day. No one could have doubted the word of the weeping Eric at that moment. The monster resumed his mask and collected his strength to leave the Daroga. He told him that when he felt his end to be very near at hand, he would send him, in gratitude for the kindness which the Persian had once shown him, that which he held dearest in the world, all Christine Day's papers, which she had written for Raoul's benefit, and left with Eric, together with a few objects belonging to her, such as a pair of gloves, a shoe-buckle, and two pocket-handkerchiefs. In reply to the Persian's questions, Eric told him that the two young people, as soon as they found themselves free, had resolved to go and look for a priest in some lonely spot where they could hide their happiness, and that, with this object in view, they had started from the northern railway station of the world. Lastly, Eric relied on the Persian, as soon as he received the promised relics and papers, to inform the young couple of his death and to advertise it in the epoch. That was all. The Persian saw Eric to the door of his flat, and Darius helped him down to the street. A cab was waiting for him. Eric stepped in, and the Persian, who had gone back to the window, heard him say to the driver, Go to the opera, and the cab drove off into the night. The Persian had seen the poor, unfortunate Eric for the last time. Three weeks later, the epic published this advertisement. Eric is dead. End of chapter 26「Epilogue of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux Translated by Alexander Tezera de Matos This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I have now told the singular but veracious story of the opera ghost. As I declared on the first page of this work, it is no longer possible to deny that Eric really lived. There are today so many proofs of his existence within the reach of everybody that we can follow Eric's actions logically through the whole tragedy of the Chagnys. There is no need to repeat here how greatly the case excited the capital. 
the kidnapping of the artist, the death of the Comte de Chagny under such exceptional conditions, the disappearance of his brother, the drugging of the gas-man at the opera, and of his two assistants, what tragedies, what passions, what crimes had surrounded the idol of Raoul and the sweet and charming Christine, what had become of that wonderful, mysterious artist of whom the world was never, never to hear again. She was represented as the victim of a rivalry between the two brothers, and nobody suspected what had really happened. Nobody understood that as Raoul and Christine had both disappeared, both had withdrawn far from the world to enjoy a happiness which they would not have cared to make public after the inexplicable death of Count Philippe. They took the train one day from the northern railway station of the world. Possibly I too shall take the train at that station one day, and go and seek around thy lakes, O Norway, O silent Scandinavia, for the perhaps still living traces of Raoul and Christine, and also of Mama Valerius, who disappeared at the same time. Possibly some day I shall hear the lonely echoes of the north repeat the singing of her who knew the angel of music. Long after the case was pigeonholed by the unintelligent care of Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction IV, the newspapers made efforts at intervals to fathom the mystery. One evening paper alone, which knew all the gossip of the theatre, said, We recognize the touch of the opera ghost. And even that was written by way of irony. The Persian alone knew the whole truth and held the main proofs, which came to him with the pious relics promised by the ghost. It fell to my lot to complete those proofs with the aid of the Daroga himself. Day by day I kept him informed of the progress of my inquiries, and he directed them. He had not been to the opera for years and years, but he had preserved the most accurate recollection of the building, and there was no better guide than he possible to help me discover its most secret recesses. He also told me where to gather further information, whom to ask, and he sent me to call on Monsieur Poligny at a moment when the poor man was nearly drawing his last breath. I had no idea that he was so very ill, and I shall never forget the effect which my questions about the ghost produced upon him. He looked at me as if I were the devil, and answered only in a few incoherent sentences which showed, however, and that was the main thing the extent of the perturbation which o g in his time had brought into that already very restless life for m poligny was what people call a man of pleasure when i came and told the persian of the poor result of my visit to m poligny the daroga gave a faint smile and said poligny never knew how far that extraordinary black guard of an eric humbugged him the Persian, by the way, spoke of Eric sometimes as a demigod, and sometimes as the lowest of the low. Poligny was superstitious, and Eric knew it. Eric knew most things about the public and private affairs of the opera. When Monsieur Poligny heard a mysterious voice tell him, in Box Five, of the manner in which he used to spend his time and abuse his partner's confidence, he did not wait to hear any more. Thinking at first that it was a voice from heaven, he believed himself damned, and then when the voice began to ask for money, he saw that he was being victimized by a shrewd blackmailer to whom Debian himself had fallen a prey. 
both of them already tired of management for various reasons, went away without trying to investigate further into the personality of that curious O.G. who had forced such a singular memorandum book upon them. They bequeathed the whole mystery to their successors, and heaved a sigh of relief when they were rid of a business that had puzzled them without amusing them in the least. Then I spoke of the two successors and expressed my surprise that in his memoirs of a manager Monsieur Moncharmin should describe the opera ghost's behavior at such length in the first part of the book and hardly mention it at all in the second. In reply to this, the Persian, who knew the memoirs as thoroughly as if he had written them himself, observed that I should find the explanation of the whole business if I would just recollect the few lines which Moncharmin devotes to the ghost in the second part aforesaid. I quote these lines, which are particularly interesting because they describe the very simple manner in which the famous incident of the twenty thousand francs was closed. As for O.G., some of whose curious tricks I have related in the first part of my memoirs, I will only say that he redeemed by one spontaneous fine action all the worry which he had caused my dear friend and partner, and I am bound to say myself. He felt, no doubt, that there are limits to a joke, especially when it is so expensive, and when the commissary of police has been informed, for at the moment when we had made an appointment in our office with Monsieur Mifroy to tell him the whole story, a few days after the disappearance of Christine Day, we found on Richard's table a large envelope inscribed in red ink, with O.G.'s compliments. It contained the large sum of money which he had succeeded in playfully extracting, for the time being, from the treasury. Richard was at once of the opinion that we must be content with that and drop the business. I agreed with Richard. All's well that ends well. What do you say, O.G.? Of course, Moncharmin, especially after the money had been restored, continued to believe that he had, for a short while, been the butt of Richard's sense of humor, whereas Richard, on his side, was convinced that Moncharmin had amused himself by inventing the whole affair of the opera ghost in order to revenge himself for a few jokes. I asked the Persian to tell me by what trick the ghost had taken twenty thousand francs from Richard's pocket in spite of the safety pin. He replied that he had not gone into this little detail, but that if I myself cared to make an investigation on the spot, I should certainly find the solution to the riddle in the manager's office by remembering that Eric had not been nicknamed the trapdoor lover for nothing. I promised the Persian to do so as soon as I had time, and I may as well tell the reader at once that the results of my investigation were perfectly satisfactory, and I hardly believed that I should ever discover so many undeniable proofs of the authenticity of the feats ascribed to the ghost the persian's manuscript christine day's papers the statements made to me by the people who used to work under messieurs richard and moncharmin by little meg herself the worthy madame jury i'm sorry to say is no more and by sorelli who is now living in retirement at louvciennes all the documents relating to the existence of the ghost which i propose to deposit in the archives of the opera have been checked and confirmed by a number of important discoveries of which i am justly proud i have not been able to find the house on the lake eric having blocked up all the secret entrances on the other hand i have discovered the secret passage of the communists 
the planking of which is falling to pieces in parts, and also the trap-door through which Raoul and the Persian penetrated into the cellars of the opera-house. In the communist dungeon I noticed numbers of initials traced on the walls by the unfortunate people confined in it, and among these were an R and a C. R. C. Raoul de Chagny. The letters are there to this day. If the reader will visit the opera one morning and ask leave to stroll where he pleases without being accompanied by a stupid guide, let him go to box five and knock with his fist or stick on the enormous column that separates this from the stage-box. He will find that the column sounds hollow. After that, do not be astonished by the suggestion that it was occupied by the voice of the ghost. There is room inside the column for two men. If you are surprised that when the various incidents occurred no one turned round to look at the column, you must remember that it presented the appearance of solid marble and that the voice contained in it seemed rather to come from the opposite side, for, as we have seen, the ghost was an expert ventriloquist. The column was elaborately carved and decorated with the sculptor's chisel, and I do not despair of one day discovering the ornament that could be raised or lowered at will, so as to admit of the ghost's mysterious correspondence with Madame Jury and of his generosity." However, all these discoveries are nothing, to my mind, compared with that which I was able to make in the presence of the acting manager in the manager's office, within a couple of inches from the desk-chair, and which consisted of a trap-door, the width of a board in the flooring and the length of a man's forearm, and no longer, a trap-door that falls back like the lid of a box, a trap-door through which I can see a hand come and dexterously fumble at the pocket of a swallow-tail coat. That is the way the forty thousand francs went, and that also is the way by which, through some trick or other, they were returned. Speaking about this to the Persian, I said, so we may take it, as the forty thousand francs were returned, that Eric was simply amusing himself with that memorandum-book of his. Don't you believe it, he replied. Eric wanted money. Thinking himself without the pale of humanity, he was restrained by no scruples, and he employed his extraordinary gifts of dexterity and imagination, which he had received by way of compensation for his extraordinary ugliness, to prey upon his fellow-men. His reason for restoring the forty thousand francs of his own accord was that he no longer wanted it. He had relinquished his marriage with Christine Day. He had relinquished everything above the surface of the earth. According to the Persian's account, Eric was born in a small town not far from Rouen. He was the son of a master mason. He ran away at an early age from his father's house, where his ugliness was a subject of horror and terror to his parents. For a time he frequented the fairs, where a showman exhibited him as the living corpse, he seems to have crossed the whole of Europe from fair to fair, and to have completed his strange education as an artist and magician at the very fountainhead of art and magic among the gypsies. A period of Eric's life remained quite obscure. He was seen at the fair of Nijni Novgorod, where he displayed himself in all his hideous glory. He already sang as nobody on this earth had ever sung before, he practiced ventriloquism, 
and gave displays of legerdemain so extraordinary that the caravans returning to asia talked about it during the whole length of their journey in this way his reputation penetrated the walls of the palace at mazenderan where the little sultana the favorite of the shah in shah was boring herself to death a dealer in furs returning to smarken from nijinya novgorod told of the marvels which he had seen performed in eric's tent the trader was summoned to the palace and the daroga of mazenderan was told to question him next the daroga was instructed to go and find eric he brought him to persia where for some months eric's will was law he was guilty of not a few horrors for he seemed not to know the difference between good and evil he took part calmly in a number of political assassinations and he turned his diabolical inventive powers against the emir of afghanistan who was at war with the persian empire the shah took a liking to him this was the time of the rosy hours of mazenderan of which the daroga's narrative has given us a glimpse eric had very original ideas on the subject of architecture and thought out a palace much as a conjurer contrives a trick casket the shah ordered him to construct an edifice of this kind eric did so and the building appears to have been so ingenious that his majesty was able to move about in it unseen and to disappear without a possibility of the tricks being discovered when the shah in shah found himself the possessor of this gem he ordered eric's yellow eyes to be put out but he reflected that even when blind eric would still be able to build so remarkable a house for another sovereign and also that as long as eric was alive someone would know the secret of the wonderful palace eric's death was decided upon together with that of all the laborers who had worked under his orders the execution of this abominable decree devolved upon the daroga of mazenderan eric had shown him some slight services and procured him many a hearty laugh he saved eric by providing him with the means of escape but nearly paid with his head for this generous indulgence fortunately for the daroga a corpse half eaten by the birds of prey was found on the shore of the caspian sea and was taken for eric's body because the daroga's friends had dressed the remains in clothing that belonged to eric the daroga was let off with the loss of the imperial favor the confiscation of his property and an order of perpetual banishment as a member of the royal house however he continued to receive a monthly pension of a few hundred francs from the persian treasury and on this he came to live in paris as for eric he went to asia minor and thence to constantinople where he entered the sultan's employment in explanation of the services which he was able to render a monarch haunted by perpetual terrors i need only say that it was eric who constructed all the famous trap-doors and secret chambers and mysterious strong-boxes which were found at yildiz kiosk after the last turkish revolution he also invented those automata dressed like the sultan and resembling the sultan in all respects which made people believe that the commander of the faithful was awake at one place when in reality he was asleep elsewhere of course he had to leave the sultan's service for the same reasons that made him fly from persia he knew too much then tired of his adventurous formidable and monstrous life 
he longed to be someone like everybody else and he became a contractor like an ordinary contractor building ordinary houses with ordinary bricks he tendered for part of the foundations in the opera his estimate was accepted when he found himself in the cellars of the enormous playhouse his artistic fantastic wizard nature resumed the upper hand besides was he not as ugly as ever he dreamed of creating for his own use a dwelling unknown to the rest of the earth where he could hide from men's eyes for all time the reader knows and guesses the rest it is all in keeping with this incredible and yet veracious story poor unhappy eric shall we pity him shall we curse him he asked only to be someone like everybody else but he was too ugly and he had to hide his genius or use it to play tricks with when with an ordinary face he would have been one of the most distinguished of mankind he had a heart that could have held the empire of the world and in the end he had to content himself with a cellar ah yes we must needs pity the opera ghost i have prayed over his mortal remains that god might show him mercy notwithstanding his crimes yes i am sure quite sure that i prayed beside his body the other day when they took it from the spot where they were burying the phonographic records it was his skeleton i did not recognize it by the ugliness of the head for all men are ugly when they have been dead as long as that but by the plain gold ring which he wore and which christine day had certainly slipped on his finger when she came to bury him in accordance with her promise the skeleton was lying near the little well in the place where the angel of music first held christine day fainting in his trembling arms on the night when he carried her down to the cellars of the opera house and now what do they mean to do with that skeleton surely they will not bury it in the common grave i say that the place of the skeleton of the opera ghost is in the archives of the national academy of music it is no ordinary skeleton end of epilogue end of the phantom of the opera by gaston leroux translated by alexander tezera de matos recording by ralph j snelson When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.